this week's by popular demand sermon um, flows out of my message from last week. You say, well, I wasn't here last week. Well, listen to it on a podcast, but you'll still get it this week. Um, and so it flows out of that last week. Because last week, we looked at the topic of the return of Christ. And we said something that that um, that topic's not a by popular demand topic because I hear people talk about it, but just the opposite. I don't hear people talk about it, but the Bible talks about it all the time. Over 60 times in the New Testament, every single New Testament author talks about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And so we looked at that topic last week, the return of Christ, and we found that in Second Peter, that um, as followers of Christ, something's amazing, that we can actually have a part in hurrying along Christ's return. Because Peter says it this way, he says, we can hasten his return, and he explains through the text how you can do that, and it's just how we can do it. We can hasten his return by joining with him in his mission of seeking and saving lost people, of helping bringing people to Jesus. And the reason we found last week that that could hasten his return is because Peter said in that text that the Lord is patiently waiting to come back. He's waiting, he's restraining right now, giving extra time in order to give more people more chances to turn to him as Lord and Savior. And somehow in God's economy, when the right number, and who knows how this is going to happen, I don't know if it's a number, I don't know if it's a date, I don't know how, what God's plan is, because no one knows, it says that Jesus himself doesn't know, that somehow in God's great plan, that at the right time, when people turn to him and the gospel is preached around the globe, that then he will return for his church. So, so we get to hasten it. Now then, following out of that, then here is the point that I want to focus on today. The by popular demand topic. That is one I do hear asked about a lot and people talk to me about a lot. It's this topic. The topic of you and I joining with Jesus on his mission to seek and to save people who don't know him yet. In other words, how can you and I be used of God to have a part in the process of leading someone to Jesus? A friend or a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. Here's what numbers tell us. Numbers tell me that 95% of you will never lead one person to Jesus in your entire Christian walk. That's not something to be happy about. That's what numbers tell us. 95% of people won't. Now, here's what I've found in my life, and this is just kind of extra for you. You don't have to be so, you don't have to be wonderful or great or spiritual or highly spiritual or greatly educated in order to be part of leading somebody to Jesus. Because I have seen very simple people with low education be incredibly effective. And I've I've watched simple people like my wife and I over the years be part of God's plan and seeing just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people come to Christ. And had nothing to do with seminary, has nothing to do with position. Matter of fact, I have found those generally stand in the way of me being able to do a good job. But the reality is that we can have a part. You can have a part. I want our church to be a place where we say 95% have and are being used of Jesus to lead somebody to Christ. You know, people have all these crazy, great business models on how you make the church grow. You want to know how you make the church grow? And the church grow, the only reason I care about the church growing is lost people are getting found. That's the only reason. Not very complicated. If each one of you led one person to Jesus this year, we'd have to be in two services. Because you wouldn't put them in a building. That's not very complicated, is it? 
Right? And so we get this incredible opportunity to be part of God's plan at leading people to Jesus. And I know it's a topic that spooks people for some reason. I didn't figure that out, but I understand. I've not walked in your shoes, so you don't have my personality. Like Suzanne's like, Mark, everywhere you go, you talk to a fence post. You talk to, you talk to every stranger, and I do. You know, there's, I, I'm pumping gas. I talk to the person next to me. You know, I really do. How are you doing today? You know, so I know I'm odd that way. But my wife's just the opposite. She would never, the worst thing Suzanne ever wants to do is stand in front of people. She hates it, standing in front of a crowd. But you know what? I've seen her use of God to lead many, many, many people to Christ. So it's not about personality types. So, our by popular demand topic is something that I desperately want each one of you to grasp on how you can be used of God. Because I promise you there's nothing, you can have all the fun and sports and activities that you want to do that really are, there's nothing wrong with them, but they distract us from the main thing. It's all right. Recreation is recreation. It's You get recreated in order to do the most important thing. The most important thing is leading people to Jesus. That was Jesus' only mission. Seek and save the lost. That's the most important thing. Recreation is just designed to recreate you to get you back engaged in the only important thing. And I'll promise you this, when you get engaged in the only important thing, that's when your life takes on the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment you've ever experienced in your entire life. I want 95%, I want 100% of you to be able to lay awake at night and go, oh my goodness, God used me to reach that person and that person's going to heaven now. I want you to have that, I want you to experience that fulfillment in that joy. Now, before we look at just kind of the how that can be done, how you can have part in that process, I wanted to just today talk about the how, and I couldn't. I was teasing one of our, one of our secretaries in the office, and I said, my introductory points, eight pages of notes. I said, I guess I have to do two sermons. And so that's what we're doing. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, I, 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 you should see the fear on their faces. <laughs> I'm going to break this message into two parts, this week and next week. Today I want to look at, instead of the how, I first want to look at the why. Because here's what I know. If you don't deal with the why first, then what you do is legalism, it's law, it's empty, and it's guilt-driven. And there's nothing more miserable than guilt-driven Christians. It's why a lot of Christians are really crabby and unhappy and the world doesn't like them because they don't understand grace and love and they do things out of ought to, only out of ought to. There's a lot of ought to's, but they don't understand the why side of things. And so they don't get the, the idea of why I'm doing this, which empowers the how. Does that make sense? So today we're going to talk about the why. Um, why we should be involved in partnering with Jesus in seeking, this, in saving the lost. Why should we be joining him on his mission? Why should it be the most important thing in our life? And then next week we're going to talk about the how. Okay? So basically today I want to talk about two things. There are two reasons, and maybe there's a lot more, but two primary reasons why we should be engaged in partnering with Jesus in order to be involved in actively trying to bring people into a right relationship with him. First one is this. Why should we? We should seek and save the lost because people need to be rescued from destruction. That's the found, most foundational one. And I'm going to try to open up your eyes or at least alarm you to, of some things today um, as we go through this day because you go, oh, yeah, I understand that. I'm not sure we do. That people need to be rescued from destru- destruction. Grab your Bible. 
Turn back to the section of Scripture. That's why I say this flows out of last week. Turn back to Second Peter. If you weren't here last week, we spent the whole, the whole service in Second Peter chapter 3, and we looked at that whole, that whole chapter. We read the whole chapter. The whole chapter deals with Jesus' second coming, his return. In Second Peter, you got it there, chapter 3. We're just going to look at one verse today. Look at verse 7, 2 Peter 3, 7. It says this, But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Remember, he says earlier in the text, they were drowned, the whole earth was destroyed by water. But now the whole earth is being reserved for destruction by fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. We'll stop right there. By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Friends, there is a day of judgment and destruction coming. It's a day when, as it says here, it says, use the term on purpose, ungodly men, and it's a neuter sense of men and women, people, ungodly people will face destruction for their what? Descriptive there for their ungodliness. And we know from Scripture, the rest of Scripture, that the destruction that they will face will be terrible and it will be eternal. Now you say, yeah, we understand this. I'm not sure we do. I want to alarm you or alert you to something today. You need to understand that there is a strong push within Christian circles today to downplay or to nullify the idea of eternal judgment and destruction. It's, it's alarming to me how often I hear it, and how slick the presentation is. Many voices, leading voices, evangelical voices, are beginning to question if there really will be eternal punishment for people who don't know Jesus. Matter of fact, they're beginning to question and really say in rather persuasive ways that you don't even really need to have Jesus in the equation because Jesus paid it all. They would say they have a high view of the atonement of Christ. He paid it all, therefore all people are saved. I've heard leading people say it. I heard a pastor say to me recently, he said, well, I'm not sure if Jesus is a universalist, but I hope he is. And I heard it out of my own ears of a, of a respected evangelical pastor in this area. The reasoning usually goes something like this. Saying something about that if we have a loving God who loves us so much, and He does, we've been talking about that a lot lately, that a loving God surely would not allow such terrible destruction upon the creation that He created. And therefore, somehow through the atonement, He's going to save everybody. No hell. No destruction. No judgment. It sounds, they can actually make a logical case for it. And it sounds very kind and very loving, but here's the problem with it, church. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. It doesn't matter what I think about the topic. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what a really smart guy thinks about it or a really smart gal thinks about it. We have a book. It's God's inspired word to us. It's not biblical. Scripture clearly and repeatedly says people must come to Christ to escape judgment for their sins. It's what communion is all about. A new covenant in His blood. Scripture clearly and repeatedly says you must be born again. Or you will face eternal judgment and destruction. 
God's word says it clearly and repeatedly. You see, Second Peter is trying to make a point here. He says there's a day coming when Christ will return. And he will usher in a time of judgment and destruction for all those who don't know him as Savior and Lord. And you see here he says this. He says ungodly people here, ungodly men. And it's a description of people, understand this is what he's talking about, who still are guilty of their sins. Now, I hate to break some news to you. you if you know Jesus, you were a sinner and you still participate in sin. Okay? All of us are guilty of sin. But he's talking about people here who have not yet found forgiveness in Christ. And that's how they could be termed ungodly. They've not yet come into a relationship with Christ and had their sins forgiven. Church, you see, you need to understand something about what really happens when you come to Christ. When you come to Jesus and you confess your sins and you turn away from your sins, that's what repentance is, you turn away of sin and you turn towards Jesus. He then, in essence, does this. And he doesn't have a real stamp. But think of it this way. He basically takes a stamp and he stamps not guilty upon you. Scripture says your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus replaces your sinfulness with his righteousness. He makes an exchange. He gives you his righteousness and he takes upon himself your sinfulness. That's what he did on the cross. And what happens at that point is it says then about you, at that moment, you were guilty. But now in Christ, you're not guilty. In Christ, not because of you, but because of him. In Christ, you have now the righteousness of Christ. You go from sinner to saint. You go from ungodly, he said ungodly men, to godly men in Christ. Because of Christ, not because of you, not because of your effort, but because you have come to terms with your guilt and you've received by asking forgiveness. By faith, you've received it. And in this new state of righteousness, where you have been crucified with Christ, it says you pass then from judgment unto life. So the judgment's already come. The judgment that's awaiting when Christ comes, that judgment in the sense of judgment on whether or not you have eternal life or eternal death, that judgment has happened in Christ, in your life. You'll still face a judgment for what we do. You know that? The Bema seat. You'll still face judgment for what you've done, but not a judgment based on eternity. But understand, for all who haven't come to Christ... They are still lost in sin. And they are the ungodly men that he's talking about here that will face judgment and destruction. Now, as a child of God, as someone who's experienced being born again, as someone who is inhabited by the Holy Spirit, you know the truth. You have the book. You have the word. You see the end of the story. We know the truth. You have God's word and God's spirit teaching you and you know the truth about what lies ahead, what Peter's talking about here. So listen, friends. That should compel us to tell those who don't know the truth that they must escape and they can escape future destruction. I want you to think of it like this. I want you to picture with me in your mind. Imagine you're sitting on a hillside and you're overlooking a beautiful valley. 
And in the bottom of the valley is a set of train tracks running through the valley, winding through the bottom of the valley. Kind of like watching an old western. You know, as always, the bandoleros are sitting on the hillside on their horses, and there's the valley running below there, and there's the train, and maybe they're going to rob the train, but there, think of it. Think of that train tracks running through the valley, and you're on, on the hillside. Now, as you look over that scene, you notice that down a ways into, into the scene is a bridge over a beautiful river, but you notice as you look that the bridge is out. And it's a bridge that the train tracks go over. So you recognize that that train tracks is going over this bridge, but the bridge is out over the water. And then in your mind, you hear the sound. You hear the train whistle in the distance. And you realize that the train is coming and the train is going to go through this beautiful scene and it's going to hit that spot where the tracks are out and the train is going to plunge off the bridge and into the water. And you realize that if you don't stop the train, the train will plunge off the bridge. Here's the reality, knowing that. At that point, you have a choice to make. You can ignore it. You can ignore the reality of the truth that you know, and you can say, well, guess what? My family's fine. We're out for a picnic. We're sitting on the side of this hill just enjoying life. It's good and great. God's blessing us. You can sit on the side of the hill, and you can watch a train, and you can know that it's going to crash. And you can sit there with your family and your friends, and you can sit there with your whole church, and you can have a party on the hillside. And the church... We'll go around the, the train will go around the corner off the bridge and plunge and die. You say, well, my friends and family are on the train. Or you can do something different. You can do whatever possible, whatever God could allow you to do, not in your own effort, but in His effort working through you, but, but you still put effort into it. You can try to alert the train to the danger ahead. Now, the people on the train still have got to choose if they're going to stop the train. It's their choice. They still got to choose if they're going to get off the train. They could jump. It's their choice. But you can do whatever you can do to try to alert them to the fact that the train in the future is going to go around the corner off a bridge and plunge to your destruction. You just do your best to try to whatever, do whatever possible to alert them that there's danger ahead. Friends, here's the deal. Here's the reality. We know the bridge is out. We've got God's word. We know the bridge is out. We know people need to be rescued from judgment and destruction. And we know the solution, right? We know the solution. We know how to fix the bridge. This is why we join with Jesus on his mission. Because we can help rescue people from very real judgment and destruction. Friends, love compels us to do it. That's why we're people who care. It's all about love. It's why we're people who care that, that we really ought to feel something that compels us to want to help the train not go off the tracks if Jesus is really in us. Right? We're people who care. Now, that ought to be reason enough for us to just be engaged in Jesus' mission. We ought to be able to say, well, we know the truth. The train's going off the tracks. Let's do what we can do to alert people so they get off the train. And it's really... Get off that train and on God's train. The soul train, right? That was pretty good. never thought of that one. I hear a, roll, a low rumble of booing in the background. But there's another reason. And that one might seem like a negative reason. It's actually a positive reason because we're getting him going to heaven. But you could feel like it's negative and I feel pressured, you know, and I, I, I don't feel that way about it, but I could see how a person could. But there is another reason. It's the second thing I want to talk about today. There's another reason 
that is also incredibly compelling as to why we ought to lead people to Jesus, get engaged in the mission of God, to seeking and saving the lost people. It's because of this. When we do, and they get to know Jesus, that we help people discover their destiny. We help people discover their destiny. Understand this about the whole picture of all of God's working with humanity. That in the beginning, from, the very, from Adam and Eve, in the beginning, mankind was created in the image of God. And created in the image of God, there was limitless potential within mankind. But when man chose to sin, the image of God was corrupted and man's potential was limited. But friends, then when a person comes to Christ, and get this, and cooperates with God's Spirit as the Spirit of God molds and shapes them in their lives. The progression of getting to know like Jesus is a cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit. You can get saved and stay exactly like you are your whole life, and I see it happen all the time, because you don't cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your life. But if a person comes to Christ and cooperates with God's molding and shaping in their lives, they will become someone so much greater than they ever would have been without Jesus. And what happens is, once again, the potential becomes limitless in Christ. Jesus said it to his disciples. He said, I've done all these great things, but greater things than these you shall do if you're in me. He says, greater than Jesus. Why? Because the limitless potential of God, of Jesus spread across billion people who know Jesus can do extraordinary things. Just think about the examples we see from Scripture. Think about the Apostle Peter. This incredibly ordinary, simple fisherman. You've got to like Peter. He's a fisherman. How can't you like a fisherman? Right? This fisherman, probably very uneducated. He's a Jew, so he's probably had gone through basic scriptural training, but he's really uneducated. He's a simple fisherman. And look what happens to Peter's life. He becomes the main leader in the early church. We think of Paul being the main leader, but Peter's the main leader. He's the guy with all the power. He becomes the main leader of the early church. He authors all these epistles, all these letters in your Bible, all these books we call them, all these epistles that are still being read over 2,000 years later. And I would say this, and I don't think people, any historian would argue with me, he is one of the most influential figures in all of human history. Because we're looking at him today, 2,000 plus years later, and saying, how should it affect my life today? That's phenomenal. That's influence. Now just think about something for a minute. What would his life have been if he had never come to know Jesus? We don't know for sure, but I think we can assume. Because there was all kinds of fishermen in Galilee back then. All kinds of people fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He probably would have lived and died as an unknown fisherman. He would have influenced his family, maybe probably, maybe for good, maybe for bad. I don't know. He was a God, he was a God follower because he was looking for the Messiah. He willingly went when Jesus called, so he, he probably really knew God. He would influence a few people. But his incredible potential, his destiny was realized when he, became, when he met Jesus. And Jesus said this to him, Peter, you're a fisher of fish, but I want to make you a fisher of men. He said, I got something better for you. You think this is your destiny, but I'm telling you, this is your destiny. It's all about catching people. It's not about catching fish. He says, I'm going to give you something so much better than what you have. Your incredible potential will be realized when you follow me, Jesus was saying. The same thing is true of the Apostle Paul. Think of him. 
Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus. He's a little different than Peter. He's an educated man. He held some position as a Pharisee. He calls himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was influential. He um, was so engaged in his religious activity that he tried to destroy the early church, thinking it was an affront to Judaism. He was probably respected by his peers. He probably had some financial resources. But when he, went Jesus, when he met Jesus, everything in his life changed. Saul became Paul. And he and his writings that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write have literally affected the development of all of Western civilization. If you want to understand why Western civilization thinks like it does, we constantly look to what the Apostle Paul has to say. Because we try to understand how do you interpret the Ten Commandments, Judeo-Christian ethic that has pervaded and driven the Western civilization, and we say, how do you understand it? We understand it in light of the Apostle Paul. We go to the epistles, and we say, they're didactic or teaching literature. And we say, what does Paul have to say about it? That's what we say thousands of years later. Not only has he developed Western civilization, but he is primarily the figure next to Christ responsible for the development of how we run a local church. When we don't know what to do, what do we say? We go look to the scriptures. Where do we generally look? We look to Paul, because he wrote over half the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Very few men have had the global impact of the Apostle Paul. He discovered his destiny when he became a follower of Christ. And get this, and an apostle to the Gentiles. His thought on his destiny was that he was going to be a hard worker in Judaism. God said, "Uh uh-uh, you think it's that. I'm telling you it's this. He did something to Paul that completely messed with everything he believed about his entire life. He says, your destiny lies in reaching Gentiles. The people that you didn't even before Christ even believe could be in a right relationship with God, that's who your destiny is to reach. You're going to reach Gentiles. It's largely because of the Apostle Paul discovering his destiny in Christ that you and I are Christians today because God used him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And those Gentiles are our ancestors because not many of you are Jew by birth. It's because he discovered his real destiny. His destiny was accomplished in Jesus. I think of somebody, one more example, that's not biblical. But I think of people like D.L. Moody. Anybody ever heard of Moody Bible Institute? Chicago, incredible, incredible history of training people for Jesus, sending out missionaries and ministers around the world, affecting people, millions of people. I think of D.L. Moody. You know what I like about D.L. Moody? He was a shoe salesman from Chicago. People wanted to get him all his titles. He's like, you're wrong, I'm just a shoe salesman from Chicago. That's all he really believed about himself. He was a shoe salesman from Chicago. That's what he thought his destiny was. But God said, D.L. Moody, I got something more for you. He said, your destiny really isn't to sell shoes. Your destiny is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world and to literally win millions of people through his ministry and the ministry to follow his life, ministry that he established in Moody Bible Institute and all the training, Moody Church, and all the things that he's done that still today millions, at least hundreds of thousands right now are being affected by the ministry of D.L. Moody, a shoe salesman from Chicago. Here's my point, church. No one would have selected Moody as a shoe salesman. No one would have selected Peter 
He's a fisherman. No one would have selected Paul. He was the he was trying to kill the church. God, none of those people would have been selected for great influencers. But when they came to Jesus, God began to reshape them. God began to empower them to destinies infinitely greater than anyone ever would have imagined could have taken place in any one of their lives. But understand this. This idea of God helping people discover their destinies isn't just for world changers in the sense of famous people. You say, oh, that's for the famous people. No. Realize that no one will achieve their ultimate destiny without coming to Jesus first. No one. Friends, that's, that's why we lead people to Jesus. That's why it's more important to get your kids grounded in their faith than it is to make sure they get a good college education. Do both. That's why it's more important for you to live a godly example so your kids know Jesus and your grandkids know Jesus and your neighbor knows Jesus than it is to set them on what our culture says is a pathway to success. Because they will never find their destiny apart from Christ. That's why we engage in the ministry of partnering with Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Because he wants to do great things through and in every single person ever born. Everybody is equally valuable to Christ. Friends, in Christ, drug dealers can become wonderful mothers and fathers when they give their life to Jesus. We watch it every year, Teen Challenge Bank service. That in Christ, abusers can become, become loving nurturers who help others know and serve Jesus. People who once were abusers now are lovers and gracious helpers. Printers can become preachers. That's what I was for six years. People, God will take people who the world says can't achieve anything. Oh, they just don't have, they don't have what it takes. And he can do amazing things through anybody when they are shaped and empowered by Jesus and his spirit. Church, understand God has a destiny for each of you, for every person. He knows you by name and His dream for you is greater than anything you can imagine. And if you will cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in your life, and it takes cooperation, if you will be humble and teachable, then God will shape you and make you into someone that the world would never believe is possible. Well, friends, the same is true for your children and your cousins, and your neighbors, and your co-workers. God has a destiny for each and every one of them. And it starts when they have their sins forgiven, and they shed the baggage of the world, and they begin to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in their life. That's the spark that starts it. Think about it, friends. When you join Jesus on his mission of seeking and saving the lost, you, you are helping people find their destiny. That's really what was going on with Peter and Paul and D.L. Moody. They discovered their destiny in helping other people find Jesus. That's where your destiny is fulfilled. 
in helping other people find their destiny, which starts in Christ. Think about it. When you influence your kids and your grandkids, you influence them by teaching them, but more importantly, by modeling a life before them that draws them to Jesus, they say, I want to be like you. I see Jesus in you. Not, I want to be like you because you're rich and powerful. There's nothing wrong with being rich and powerful. But if you don't have Jesus, you draw your kids to that, you draw them to the wrong thing because they'll never become what they're supposed to become in Christ. We get to, to teach them and model a life before them that draws them to Jesus, Jesus, the Jesus that you know and love. Then you are helping them become what God has created them to become. Their destiny. It's there that they find real life and they find real fulfillment. That's where it starts and that's where it develops. It does not happen outside of Christ. So, why should we join with Jesus on his mission to seek and to save the lost? I think there's two really good reasons today. Because people need to be rescued from destruction. That's the ought to. And because it's how people discover their destiny and that's the wow of the whole thing. That's how I want to end our service today. I simply want to pray this as a prayer in closing. I want to pray and ask Jesus to open up our eyes to those around us who are spiritually hungry. Those who, are, who have receptors, spiritual receptors that are re, going to be receptive to hearing about Jesus. And I'm going to pray that God's going to be to lay those people on your hearts. One person at least for every person. I'm going to lay somebody on your heart. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the how-tos. And there's no magical how-to, I'll tell you that. That's, that's the sermon in a nutshell next week. There's no magical how-to. But there are some things we can do. But I'm going to pray that God's going to speak to you. He's going to put somebody in your heart. And some of you who say, I'm in the 95% who've never led anybody to Jesus, that in the next six months, God's going to use you to lead somebody to Jesus. Or maybe the next year. It doesn't usually happen quick. I'll tell you this, it happens slower now than it did 10 years ago, and way slower than it did 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, everybody just believed it, and you're just helping them come to terms with what they believe. Now they don't believe it. They believe the opposite often. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We've got to very slowly draw them. Very, very slowly. It's a long-term investment, but it's all worth it when you get to see somebody escape eternal judgment and discover their destiny in Jesus. So let's pray together this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, God, that in you... We discover our destiny. Lord, we see the big examples. We see the Peters and the Pauls and the Moody's. And maybe we even say about that, well, that's not me. And God, it's not. Because you have things for us to do that they could never accomplish. They're not wired for it. They're not created for it. They're not, they're not enabled to do it. But you want to mold and shape us and empower us so that you can accomplish through us incredibly great things. But not just through us. You want to do it in us. That God, here's my prayer for your church, that as we engage in the incredible mission of seeking and saving the lost, that that becomes our passion, that everyone in this room, everyone, would find greater joy and fulfillment than they ever have in their life before. And God, when the devil right now begins to make excuses in their minds, right now as the devil begins to whisper in their minds, well, that's not for you, or you've tried it, 
or you can't, or you're bashful, whatever it be, that that lie would be exposed for what it is. It's a lie from the devil because it's never about us. It's all about you because you're not bashful, you're not shy, you're not incapable, Jesus. You're ultimately everything the opposite of that. And we recognize that in Christ, it's all about you. And we rest in you and we flow through you. You flow through us. So God, right now I pray this. Begin to just lay people on our hearts. Begin to open up our minds right now and lay people on our hearts who don't know you yet. People whose destiny will never be fulfilled without you. People who are facing eternity without you. And God, begin to just lay them on our hearts. And I would ask this, Lord, that that a face would come to our mind, a name would come to our mind, that this week all of a sudden we'd be alerted to that's the one. And that God, just that we would do this this week. We would just covenant with you to begin to pray for that person or people. That we'd begin to fervently, maybe we've given up, we begin to re-spark our desire. That you would re-spark it. To be part of your, about the only ministry and mission that really matters in this entire world. Because we know this, no matter if it's today, or it's in 20 years, or 40 years, we all come to the end of our, end of our life. And then all that matters is what did, do we know you and what have we done with you? That's all that matters. And I want us to be the people who at the end of that look back and go, man, my life mattered in Jesus. So God, begin to lay people in our hearts. God, I would ask this. I'm asking you, God, that we would not be the norm. Please, God. This idea that 95% of believers never are part of leading anybody to you, please, Lord, turn that upside down here at Portview. That we would go from believing it's a paid minister's job to do it understanding that it's your job Jesus and that you select every one of us not one of us isn't engaged in it isn't to be engaged in 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 the mission and that every person in this room would get the joy of the experience of partnering with you and seeing somebody come to Christ of being part of the plan and that God in that like Peter and Paul and Moody we would find our true destiny So God, help us to cooperate with you. God, I felt very strong this week preparing that you kind of had me weave that in two or three times in this message that it's about cooperating with you. So God, tear down those walls that keep us from cooperating, those walls that we've built up for so long that just keep us living life the way we're living and we're we're kind of sheltered from the truth. Tear them down. We want to cooperate.